We're in a series that we're calling Ecclesia. Ecclesia is not an English word, it's actually a Greek word, and it means assembly, gathering, meeting. And most of the time in the Bible, the word ecclesia is translated church. Now, they don't exactly mean the same thing. You may have heard a preacher every now and then say, well, the word church does not mean building. Sure it does. Look in the English dictionary, church means building. That's the first definition. What they mean to say is, the Greek word ecclesia cannot mean building. It can't, but the English word church does. So we're calling the series Ecclesia because we're trying to figure out what the idea of church means in the Bible, and then how can we kind of extrapolate from that and realize what we're supposed to be doing as the church today. Well, I realize it's been a hot week for lots of you. Your minds are all over. Maybe you're coming thinking, well, I'll take a nap for the next 15 minutes. So I thought we'd start with a quiz. Okay, a couple questions. How many of you have seen Top Gun Maverick yet? Raise your hands. A bunch of you, right? Do you like it? How many of you liked it? Yeah, very good. I haven't seen it yet, so I'm kind of taking a poll. Wanted to make sure most of you that have seen it liked it, so maybe I'll see it. In case you didn't realize, Top Gun Maverick actually fits into a genre of movie that we all know something about. So, for example, what do these movies have in common? Godfather 2, Lord of the Rings, Two Towers, Rocky 2, The Dark Knight, Top Gun Maverick. What do they all have in common? They're all sequels. That's right. Now, a sequel is a continuation of the story, an expansion of the themes. What happens after the movie, right? And so usually sequels are not quite as good as the original, but sometimes they are. Now, do you realize that in the Bible we have lots of sequels? And when it comes to the idea of church or ecclesia, we have sequels kind of all over the place. And so when I say the word church, lots of people think we're going to learn about the church. We need to turn to Acts to learn about the church, and that's not a bad place to start. But as we're going to see, Acts is actually a sequel. It's not the premiere. So turn to Acts chapter 1, and let's read about the sequel, and then we'll kind of work with uh, going backwards to the main event. Acts chapter 1, let me read the first eight verses, and uh, you're going to kind of get a feel for what's getting started here, what's different, etc. Acts 1, verse 1. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them with many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you've heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, But in a few days, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. They gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses 
in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. Now, you realize right in the first verse, Luke tells us that Acts is a sequel, right? Verse 1 says, in my former book. He wrote another book. In the former book, that former book is the Gospel of Luke. And if you were to read the beginning of Luke, you'd see he's addressing Theophilus, the guy that probably paid for the commissioning of the book's writing. And so in my former book, what did he write about in the former book? All that Jesus began to do and to teach. Well, now this is the sequel. This is the after story. This is the expansion. This is the continuation of that story. Well, what's Acts about then? Well, he tells us down in verse 8. Acts is all about the mission of the church. Here's how uh, Luke writes it, as Jesus said it. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. That's the mission. Now, everybody knows about mission, right? But the problem is the older we get, we kind of settle. We settle for missions that aren't that significant, don't add much value, and don't change much, right? Who really understands mission? Kids. You ever speak to a little four-year-old or a five-year-old, and you say, what do you want to be when you grow up? I want to be a doctor. I'm going to cure cancer. I'm going to be a fireman. I'm going to rescue people. I'm going to be a millionaire so I can buy gas for my car. Uh, right, right? Kids have these big visions big missions of what they want to accomplish. They want to save people. They want to save the world. It's as we get older that we kind of settle, pushing paper, signing forms, cashing checks, moving. Um, but kids know what mission is. Have you settled? Look at the mission that Jesus gives to those first followers. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you're going to be my witnesses, witnesses of Jesus. And then he gives not just the mission in this verse, the outline of the book of Acts. In Jerusalem, that's Acts chapters 1 through 7. Judea and Samaria, chapters 8 through 12. To the ends of the earth, 13 through 28. And so Luke very carefully says, here's the mission, you're witnesses of me. I read a really uh, interesting quote yesterday. I wrote it down and I hope I remember. Here's what it says. It should seem obvious, but it bears repeating. It's not about you. That's good, right? That's kind of what Jesus says in Acts 1.8, and we need to be reminded, right? It should seem obvious, but it bears repeating. It's not about you. The mission that we need to be wrapping our lives around and living out it's not about us. We are to be witnesses, pointing the finger, living lives that bear witness to Jesus as the one who does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Well, that's kind of the sequel, right? And as you read the rest of Acts, you see that just unfold. But Acts is the sequel. In my former book, and then he says the former book is all about what Jesus began to do and to teach. And what is Acts? What we should continue to do what Jesus started. When we did a series on Acts a number of years ago, that's where we got the idea, continuing what Jesus started. That's what Acts is about. It's the sequel to the premiere. 
but we can't understand what we're supposed to do and what our mission is unless we understand something about the premiere. Where do we go? Well, go to Luke. That's probably a good place, right? Now, we don't have time to read through 24 chapters of Luke this morning. That'd be a good idea for you to do at some point. But there is a place in Luke's gospel right at the beginning. It's kind of interesting. In Luke chapter 4, Luke records for us Jesus' first sermon. So if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn back to Luke 4. And uh, if you don't, you want to write this down and check it out at some point. In Luke chapter 4, Luke records for us Jesus' first sermon. Now, this isn't the first sermon Jesus ever preached. This is the first sermon that Luke records. And that's really important because Luke uses this sermon and this explanation to begin Jesus' ministry. And remember, Acts chapter 1, the sequel, what Jesus began to do and to teach, here's the beginning of it in Luke chapter 4. So beginning at verse 14, I'm going to read Jesus' first sermon recorded in Luke. And it's going to be eye-opening. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. See, clearly this is not his first sermon. He's been teaching, preaching all around. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. Now, towns were small back then. You need to realize, when Jesus goes to his hometown, and he goes to the synagogue, Everybody at the service knows him. They watched him grow up. He knows all of them too. They know about his family. They know about his life. They know what kind of kid he was. They, they knew everything and he knew everything about them. He's coming home, right? Well, he goes into the uh, synagogue. He stands up to read. Jesus becoming semi-famous, right? So they say, Jesus, why don't you read the scripture today? So they hand him the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. Unrolling it, Jesus found the place where it is written. And here's what Jesus read. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He rolls up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He begins the sermon. And this was his sermon that morning. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Eight words. Wouldn't you like an eight-word sermon? I've been done a long time ago, right? Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So, the sequel... Acts is about, Acts, the former book, or Luke, is all that Jesus began to do and to teach. The sequel is about what he continues to do and teach through the church. Luke chapter 4, in Luke chapter 4, Jesus goes to a synagogue in his hometown. He takes the scroll of Isaiah, finds Isaiah 61, reads the first two verses, rolls up the scroll, hands it back, and says, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. The end. Wow. Everybody knew him. He knew everybody. That's why some in the crowd say, isn't that Joseph's son? That's the carpenter kid, right? And then he says, Jesus says, now some of you are going to say, physician, heal yourself, 
right? Like, you can't even fix your own self, and here you are trying to do something for us. But the point I want to make is, the sequel is in Acts, the premiere is in Luke, but in going to the premiere, Jesus reads something written from Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 61. I've got another uh, little, little bit of a quiz for you. Here's the quiz. Godfather 2, Bumblebee, Escape from the Planet of the Apes, and Wicked. What are they? Harder, right? They're all prequels. Now, what are prequels? Prequels give you the backstory of something, right? Now, I know somebody said, wait a minute, Godfather, it's both, isn't it? So when you watch Godfather 2, you're seeing the prequel to before the Godfather gets in New York, and then you're seeing the sequel in what follows. The prequel is the backstory. It's what comes before. And so Jesus doesn't show up in Luke chapter 4. He doesn't show up in the Gospels, and there's no tentacles to what he's doing or what he's about. The mission continues. There's a prequel to what's going on. And in Isaiah chapter 61, that's what Jesus read. And so Jesus reads from Isaiah 61, and he says, this is why I'm here. This is what's happening. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me. Proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. There's a prequel to the premiere, then Acts is the sequel. So if we're going to understand our mission as a church, last week Josh talked about our community, but if we're going to understand the mission, we can't just stay in Acts, we have to go back to Luke, but if you're in Luke, you can't stay there, you have to go back to Isaiah. Yeah, that's kind of interesting. Because Isaiah, in chapter 61, is referencing a passage from Leviticus 25. See where he says to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, to set the prisoners free, to reclaim good news to the poor. That's referencing Leviticus chapter 25. Here's what Leviticus 25 says. Count off seven years, seven times seven years, so that the seven Sabbath years amount to a period of 49 years. Then have the trumpet sounded everywhere on the 10th of the seventh month, on the Day of Atonement. Sound the trumpet throughout your land. Consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout all the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you. Each of you is to return to your family's property and to, what, and to your own claim. Huh. What's going on in Leviticus 25? Now, that's kind of weird. Who would have come up with this idea? Okay, there are four big things. You can read the chapter. Four big things happen on, in the year of Jubilee. Debts are canceled. Prisoners are released. Inheritance is restored. And atonement is offered. You're thinking, that's a crazy person that did that. Debts are canceled, prisoners released, inheritance restored, atonement offered. Yeah, here's what's going on. God knew that as human beings just live life, because we're kind of twisted on the inside, we will gunk up anything that happens. And so God says every 50th year, you kind of get a do-over. Every 50th year, your debts are canceled. Every 50th year, all the prisoners get out. Every 50th year, inheritance goes back to the original owner, and every 50th year, atonement is offered because it happens on the Day of Atonement. 
Who would have liked the year of Jubilee, do you think? Debtors, prisoners, people that have lost their inheritance, and people that are stuck in sin. That's who would have liked it. Who would have hated Jubilee? Lenders, prison guards, and people that haven't committed crimes, people that have gained the inheritance from other people, they own everything now, and people that don't think they have to atone for anything. They would have hated it. Interesting. Now, I'll ask a question. It's kind of a leading question. You probably already know. So if you kind of trace back the time, right? Say you got David, about 1,000, Moses, 1,500, kind of doing. How many times do you think from Leviticus, right, written by Moses, how many times would Jubilee have been celebrated from Moses' day through Isaiah's day all the way up to Jesus' day? How many times? Every 50th year. There is no record that Israel ever celebrated Jubilee, ever. A pretty good idea. It's God's idea. No record. Why? Well, who gets to determine whether you celebrate holidays or not? Well, people that are not in debt, they're the lenders. People that are not in prison, people that have gained the property, and people that think they have their lives together, they're the one calling the shots and doing it. And so there's no record that they ever celebrated Jubilee. So from Moses to Isaiah, no record it's been... Isaiah says, you know that Jubilee thing, that's still a really good idea. In fact, God says in Isaiah 61, God, God says to Isaiah, when the Messiah comes, he's going to bring Jubilee. All right, so we started sequel, premiere, prequel. Let's go back through and try to understand what's going on. So let's talk about the prequel and understanding. Well, the four things, right? So debtors are released of their debt. Prisoners are released from prison. Inheritance is restored at home. What's going on? Now, here's what's going on. I've said a few times in our series before this one that often we see in the Bible that externals become pictures of internals. So external realities, external pictures, are actually allowing us to see internal and eternal realities. So here's what's going on. Debts were canceled. Now, just suppose you return home from vacation, and as you return home, you're kind of unpacking the car, and your neighbor comes running out and is very happy to announce to you, oh, by the way, by the way, um, while you were gone, I paid one of your debts. How happy would you be? Well, you don't know yet. You don't know until she tells you what debt she paid, right? Suppose she said, oh yeah, they were going to drop a package off, but there was postage due and they wouldn't leave it, but I paid, therefore I, you don't even owe it back to me. Here's your package. You, oh, thanks a lot, right? You don't pay me back. Suppose your neighbor says, well, while you were gone, I paid your debt. I paid off your mortgage. You know, you've been such a great neighbor. I just paid off your mortgage. You'd be really happy, right? I mean, you would be indebted to the person or you would feel that gratitude would spill over and you'd be saying, yes, we're inviting you to every family event we have. You can come over to our house anytime. You can use my equipment. It's yours. There were lots of people in the Old Testament that would find themselves in debt. And back then, if you were in debt, there was no bankruptcy laws you would eventually be sold as a slave, you or your family, 
to pay off the debt. And so you and your family would become servants of another family to work off the debt. That's why that one bleeds into the second prisoner's release. you got to understand, in the ancient world, in ancient Israel, prison was not the penalty. Prison was the holding tank for the penalty, right? Once the conviction was made, then the penalty was enacted. If it was a capital offense, the person was dead. If there was some kind of you know, punishment, the person paid the punishment. Or, but prison was kind of the waiting place. Prison was not the punishment. Prison was the waiting. And so prisoners get released. How excited would you be if um, all the prisoners were going to be released? You say, don't release them in my neighborhood, right? But suppose a family member's in prison. Suppose a family member suffering unjustly in a prison. Suppose it wasn't an attack on someone's body, but just a, a debt that came due and there was no safety net for the person. And Well, you'd be pretty excited if that was someone you knew, or if it was you. Inheritance restored. Now, how did that work? You know, we often talk about the fact that as we go through life, we're not owners, we're stewards. God likes to give continual reminders that we're stewards and not owners, and a big one was the year of Jubilee. Here's what the year of Jubilee means when inheritance is restored. God's saying, I don't want you ever to forget, the land's all mine. It's mine. You're stewards, I'll let you live on it, but it's mine. I've given it to certain families, I've given it to certain people in tribes, and every 50th year, it's going to revert back to those people because it's mine. I don't want someone's stupidity, I don't want someone's sickness to put their children, you know, in an impoverished situation for the rest of their existence. You know, you realize without a safety net, if your parents or grandparents got sick, if they made some stupid business decision, they lost the land, their children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, they bore the consequences for the stupidity or sin or whatever of the sicknesses of their parents, great-grandparents. God says, no, no, no. I want you to remember your stewards. You're not owners. I'm the owner. And every 50th year, we return the clock, inheritance is restored. An atonement offered. When does Jubilee start? On the Day of Atonement. And so on the Day of Atonement, it's not just going through a ritual of offering a sacrifice. On the Day of Atonement, it should be a time of reflection when you realize, you know what? I really am separated and alienated from God. I may not have physical debts, but I'm certainly a moral debtor to God. I may not be in a physical prison as a waiting place for punishment, but I am in bondage, bondage to my own twisted, sinful heart. I may not have lost my inheritance as way, you know, by way of property and wealth, but I have squandered the inheritance as an heir of God, the way the Scripture says, I need atonement. So God often uses, and throughout the Bible, even in the New Testament, but certainly the Old Testament, God is using physical pictures, not just to show us the physical picture, but the physical pictures are pointing to internal and eternal realities, things that last forever and ever, not for just a temporal period of time. And so God's trying to get all the Israelites' attention. Every 50th year, Debts are going to be canceled. Prisoners are going to be released. Inheritance restored. Atonement offered every 50th year. Now go back to the premiere. How do we understand the premiere? 
Now, as Jesus stands in that synagogue in Nazareth, you need to understand, most of the people in the congregation did not owe huge sums of money to somebody. They may have been debtors, but they would have been small scale. If they're in the synagogue, they're not prisoners. Maybe they've lost a piece of their inheritance, but they haven't squandered all their inheritance. Yes, they're in need of atonement, but notice what Jesus has been doing, and he does it in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor, not just those that are actually in poverty, but those that are spiritually impoverished. Bless those that aren't just physically in prison, but are spiritually in bondage. Bless those who haven't just squandered their inheritance, but they've lost because of alienation with God. They're separated from God and they know it. All of us need atonement. So Jesus takes the metaphors, speaks directly to the congregation, and he says in that eight-word sermon, today the sermon is fulfilled in your hearing. Now, for those of you that may know Isaiah 61, You'll notice there's one phrase that Jesus doesn't read. It's the last phrase of Isaiah 61 too. So here's how it reads. To set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and to bring the justice and the vengeance of our God. Now what's Jesus doing by not reading that? Here's what he's saying. Today, this is fulfilled in your hearing. Vengeance and justice are coming, but not today. Today, this is fulfilled in your hearing. You know, as you think about the metaphors, the actuals, the internal, the external, here's what you realize. The gospel, everything we've sung about today, the gospel itself, the Bible, it's really a message of grace. What is grace? God providing for people what they cannot provide for themselves. So what's the message to the oppressed, to the poverty-stricken, to those that have lost their inheritance and to those that need atonement? They're in a hopeless, helpless situation. They cannot help themselves, but grace is God provides for people what they can't provide for themselves. That's the message that Jesus brings. That's what he quotes, and that's what Jesus brings. Oh, and by the way, that's what the sequel's about. So when you read through the book of Acts and what the sequel's about, here's what you discover. Read through the pages of Acts. You see Christians and followers of Jesus canceling and paying the actual debt of some people as a picture of the spiritual moral debt that Jesus takes away by grace. You see prisoners actually released by the Holy Spirit and the church working to release prisoners and visit prisoners and care for prisoners. That actual picture points to the ultimate spiritual eternal reality that Jesus comes to release prisoners. Inheritance restored, it's been squandered. We're heirs of God. And so the church comes to announce and pronounce, witnessing to Jesus that through our older brother, we can be adopted back into the family and become heirs again, re-inheriting what we've squandered. And how does it all start? It starts with atonement, recognizing your hopeless and helpless situation.
and trusting that only Jesus, by grace, can provide what we can't provide for ourselves. That's the mission. It may seem obvious, but it bears repeating. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's about Jesus who cancels debt, frees prisoners, reconnects us with inheritance, and offers atonement. That's not a message that begins in Acts. The premier is Jesus. You read the Gospels, that's the premier. But there are a couple prequels. If you read the Old Testament, you're told it's coming. There's a backstory all the way back in Moses, all the way back in Isaiah. Moses wrote, you guys need Jubilee, but you can't provide it for yourself. One day I'm going to provide it for you. Centuries go by nothing. Isaiah says, that Jubilee is a really good idea. Oh yeah, one day Messiah's coming. He's bringing Jubilee. And one Saturday, in a little synagogue, in a quaint little town called Nazareth, a carpenter stood up and read Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. He rolled up the scroll, handed it to the attendant, and gave an eight-word sermon. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Jubilee has arrived. I'm it, and I'm bringing it. Judgment's coming, but not today. Today is Jubilee. What's the church's mission? Just to continue that. It's not about us, right? How does the church do it? Here's how you do it. In humility and in confidence. Humility means that we recognize our hopeless and helpless situation, our need for grace and confidence, not in our abilities, confidence in our Savior and confidence in the Spirit that empowers us to go and be His witnesses. Humility and confidence. They're the two tracks we run on to witness to Him, not to ourselves. That's what our mission is. It's a new mission. It's an old mission. It's Jesus' mission. Let's pray. Father, thanks for reminding us of how this book all fits together. Sometimes we don't think in terms of sequels and premieres and prequels, but yeah, it's all there. We often spend so much time in the sequel that we fail to go back and look at the premiere. That's where the energy is. That's where it all starts. But it's also good to be reminded that the premiere had been announced and promised long before. Lord, there's a long train that's all backed up to our mission. Lord, I pray that you'd help us in humility and confidence to continually remember it's not about us. It's about Jesus and the jubilee that he brings. Thanks for including us and giving us the privilege to share it with others. We pray in his name. Amen.